Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today, as indeed we're doing all week, we're doing something special. It's the fun drive here at Utah Public Radio. We've reached into the archives and we're pulling out the best of Access Utah. It's been a very nice exercise, uh, to uh, kind of a heartening exercise to see that it's it's a hard choice to, to choose the best of. And so uh, we have themes as well, and today's theme is books. We do a lot of author interviews uh, on the program. Uh, one of the things we like to do on Access Utah is to, to go deep into fascinating ideas, and uh, authors uh, provide a, the, the, the bill. They've uh, thought about this for five years, ten years, whatever it is, and, uh, and we get some very good interviews from uh, authors. So later in the program, we're going to uh, play a bit of my interview with Ron Chernow, author of Hamilton. And uh, that uh, book has gotten a lot more readers since the musical was re- released. Uh, best thing that ever happened around Chernow was Lynn manuel Miranda. Uh, and that'll give us an excuse to play a couple of tunes from the musical. Uh, we'll also hear from Laurel Thatcher Ulrich. Uh, her meme, before meme was a thing, well-behaved women seldom make history, went viral in the 70s before viral was even a thing. We'll talk about that which, with uh, the Harvard uh, professor. Uh, but we begin with uh, Scott Hammond and his wonderful book, Lessons of the Lost. I have with me in studio Elaine Thatcher. Hi. Thanks, well, thanks, thanks for being with us. Elaine Thatcher joins me when we book uh, our uh, collective UPR book list. Book show, yeah. Uh, avid reader and uh, heads up uh, Summerfest, and uh, you do a lot of different things. Yes. Uh, oral histories as well. And, yeah, uh, I do oral history. I do uh, folk life research. Yeah. Yeah. So it's good to have you here. And we have in studio Scott Hammond. So thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. Uh, so this is one of my favorite interviews uh, ever, uh, Scott. Uh, we had you in in uh, 2013 on uh, the publication of, of your book. So just to set this up, uh, you are a professor of business, at, teach at USU in the, the Roosevelt campus. Yes. Right? But you also have a search and rescue dog. You go out on search and rescue. Dusty the Wonder Dog, yeah, and uh, he helps a lot on uh, search and rescue. Been all over the state doing mm-hmm. that. So this book, Lessons of the Lost, is about that. It's about rescue, hopefully. Sometimes it's recovery, um, but it's also about people who are lost emotionally. Yeah, uh, one of the things I found is that people who are lost in the wilderness are not all that different from the rest of us who get lost in life and get lost in work. And so we, I interviewed a lot of people who have been lost in the wilderness and sort of figured out what they know that could help us. And so I, I asked my intern, Krista, to choose 10 minutes from the interview. If it was me choosing, I'd just pick the whole interview because uh, <laughs> it's so such a fascinating conversation. Uh, so she chose a, a, a section beginning right after you tell the story of Victoria... Grover. Grover. Victoria Grover, yeah. So tell us briefly that story. Okay, Victoria Grover was is a woman who uh, had gone to uh, university and done a survival course in Utah, and then she'd gone off and lived in Maine and become a physician's assistant, done all kinds of things. And she came back to Utah to do this uh, trek, but she didn't want to go out and do survival kind of things, so she went at a just overnight hikes kind of thing. And, and one day she was in the Escalante and, and um, got into trouble and ended up in a four-day survival situation with a broken leg. And some very heroic, wonderful people from Garfield County, Ray Gardner, if he's listening, uh, a deputy sheriff down there, um, put together a search and found her. And uh, mean, and this is her story. So, uh, it's it, it just amazing uh, what she what she did. She, she, true grit. She she got herself uh, essentially out. Yeah, know. actually, the funny not funny thing about it, but they had taken out of the helicopter that found her all the medical gear because they were looking for a body, and mm-hmm. they wanted it to be lighter. Yeah. And when she um, sort of, when they flew over her, she uh, raised her hands and waved, and they were shocked to yeah. see somebody alive. The, 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 they were joyful that it was a rescue, not a recovery. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's hear this about 10 minutes from my interview from 2013 with uh, Scott Hammond. His book is Lessons of the Lost. While you're hearing this, uh, bear in mind that uh, Scott has brought in uh, 13 copies of the book. And uh, we will be offering this as a thank you gift for your pledge to Utah Public Radio. Here's a bit from Scott Hammond, Lessons of the Lost. The most interesting thing apart about the story of Victoria Grover to me, and this is one of the big points in your book, is the aftermath. I could, you know, I could imagine myself, thankfully I haven't gone through that. Uh, you'd be rescued. You'd think, phew, sigh of relief. Boy, back to my life. But she, she dealt with a lot of emotional issues after being 
rescued. Yeah, and everybody does who who's genuinely lost. You're never not an alcoholic if you've been lost in alcoholism. You're never not mentally ill if you've been lost in mental illness. You've um, if you've ever been really fired and terminated, you never let go of that in your career. And that's certainly true in the wilderness that you don't come home the same person to the same place. And Victoria dealt with that in some difficult ways. We call it post-traumatic stress syndrome sometimes or things like that. We have names for it. But it's really you came home and the world had changed. Your priorities had changed. With her, she had lived um, at the – she had a $2 poncho that saved her life. And and so money had a whole different meaning for her because that $2 poncho that was the best purchase she'd ever made is very valuable. She says she still carries it with her. And, uh, and the money doesn't mean as much anymore. The status doesn't mean as much anymore. Uh, and how did she work through some of the, the emotional – well, the things that she was feeling? You know, one of the things that she did is that I thought was great. She's a, a, a healthcare professional, a physician's assistant. And she said she was going to rededicate herself to serving others, that she found that it's in the service of helping others getting found that that she found joy in her life. And so she rededicated herself not to the business of medicine but to the care of patients. Hmm. Including helping with search and rescue. Uh, yes, she's done some of that um, in, in Maine. She's up in Maine and she's done some of that. Yeah, it, it's an amazing story. Um, and one of the other reasons is – you know, try to be prepared. You know, you maybe take a class that that could that could help. Yeah, but take a pack too. Yeah, the yeah. Boy Scouts have something called Ten Essentials, and Victoria followed that. She had matches with her. She had that two dollar poncho, and those saved her life. They literally saved her life. Uh, the Boy Scouts have a list of ten things that you're supposed to take in every pack, and I won't go a hundred yards out of my car without those ten things. Mm-hmm. Even though you think, "Hey, I'm just going down to the lake. I'm just going a short ways," you may need those things. Um, the, I think the, one of the other things uh, uh, here with 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 the case of uh, Victoria Grover and and some other stories that you tell in the book. You talk about how the the thing that gets the press, the word that gets the press, is survival. Yes, a lot of television shows, and and, and uh, you know you, you learn techniques for survival. You say it's not really about survival. Of course, you need to survive, but it's about being found. Yeah, I, I think this is a real important point because when you're in survival mode, we call it sometimes, it's a really high-cost place to be. It's standing at the edge of the cliff but not going over the cliff. So you're just trying to hang on and trying to, to get to that next moment. And what I'm trying to tell people is you got to get out of survival mode and into thriving as quickly as you can. Uh, that's particularly true if you think of somebody who's unemployed and they're going, I just need a job. I just need a job. Well, job, that small thinking doesn't motivate people to just get a job. But if you think about a career and a life and a thing that you really, really want, that motivates you then to find that job and do well at that job and turn it into a career. And so you have to have that big dream, that sense of the ideal future. Everybody I interviewed who's been lost in the wilderness said at some point they could see themselves in the future, and that was motivating, see themselves in the ideal future, and that's what motivated them through a difficult time of their lost experience. Even one of the 12-year-old boys that we interviewed talked about seeing themselves with their mo- his mother and his dad getting an Eagle Scout Award, you know, and you're going, uh, yeah, he could see that, and he's there feel, wanting to feel self-pity, and he's thinking like that. That saved him. Hmm. You, uh, at one point in the book, you have uh, this very interesting scene that stuck in my head of a group of unemployed men. Yes. In a, there's a bookstore, I think. Yes. And they just go and hang out there. Yes. What do you talk about that? Yeah, uh, I was at a. I was trying to write the last chapter of the book, and I went into the bookstore to sort of hide away from where I and to get some writing done. And there was, I, I noticed from about ten in the morning till two o'clock in the afternoon, there was a unique group of people there, and they were mostly middle-aged men. And they had they'd first come in with a stack of books that said how to write a resume, how to do a job interview kind of a thing. They weren't buying the books. They were just using the books at the bookstore, the latest. And then they'd sort of sit down and talk one-on-one to somebody else. And pretty soon you started hearing stories that they'd been laid off, that they had been victimized by unemployment, that they were feeling irrelevant in their life. And if you listened, uh, you could just hear this deep lostness in most of them. 
that they had been laid off, that they that this job that had become so precious to them was no longer there. And then they'd lost their dignity, and then they'd lost their families in some cases and their identity, and they were trying to get it back. And it was a deep and profound way of being lost. Um, for many of them, I think they're still there because they couldn't rethink themselves. But I had a student at Utah State that just really inspired me a few weeks ago. He came into class excited to tell me that uh, he hadn't been able to find a job now for almost a year. He's graduating soon. His father had just gotten laid off. And I thought, where's the happy ending here, you know? And what they, it, he'd also been a part-time worker at a local automotive shop. And um, he and his father are now buying the shop. Oh, interesting. And yeah. his father, who had been a corporate person for his whole life and got laid off, and he, who couldn't find a job, are now entrepreneurs. Mm and doing something together. And they learned to think differently about that situation. Mm. And I think if they had stayed doing the same thing, uh, new problem but same solution, they would not be where they are today. But they are very happy to have this chance to work together. This The scene in the bookstore, you know, there's there's a quiet little drama played out. The bookstore manager wants to get rid of them. Yeah. Cuts out power <laughs> of the outlets. He, you know, asks them if they want to order every 20 minutes. He, he can't get rid of them. And you say that, that perhaps the reason they're not, some of them are not getting new employment is what they're carrying around and what they, I guess, the, what exudes from them, which I guess is, is that bitterness and the... That fear. That yeah. fear. It's yeah. that fear. And it's, it's a toxic brick. And when they go into job interviews, and I've seen them in job interviews, uh, as a professor of management, I've just seen a lot of this where somebody comes into a job interview. They look great on paper. They've got all this experience. They've got all of these things that they want to do, and they come into that job interview, and you just get this sense that there's something wrong with this person. The thing that I tell people in that case is the worst thing you can do, yeah, the first two or three days after being unemployed, tell your story. Tell the story of victim. Tell, tell the story of how badly they told you and how badly they treated you. But you've got to let go of that very quickly. If you keep telling that story and living in that story, you will be so negative that it comes across in an interview. It comes across even in a letter. And, and no matter how qualified you are, they don't want you in an organization if you have that kind of negativity. The other emotion you can understand that uh, any person in that situation feels is fear. Fear. But yeah. fear can kill you. Um, but, but how do you how do you move past that? How do you, yeah. how do you get I, to I that think the hardest state? thing, and I actually think it's harder for men than it is for women. I don't have any data on this. But I think women usually find um, identities outside of work, even if they're working career professional women. They find identities and things outside of work that give meaning in their life. But most men, their identity, their core identity is their work. What do you do to contribute to society? And so when you lose that, and particularly when you lose it in your 50s and you're looking for uh, a job and they're just, they don't want to hire an, uh, an older person, it, it's very devastating. And so how do you lose that? Well, I had one fellow tell me this story. I thought it was wonderful. He came in, uh, he, he just got tired of being around people saying, what are you doing today? What are you doing today? And he got tired of sending out resumes eight months into this. So he decided to go down to what we would call a homeless shelter and just work. He wanted to work. He, he knew he wouldn't get paid, but he just wanted to work. So he went down and he said, put me to work. Three days into that adventure, he was unloading groceries from a car that had donated some groceries, got talking with the owner of the car. The guy said, well, what do you do? And he described how he had used to be an accountant. That guy said, well, I need an accountant steps into a job that is just absolutely ideal, more pay, more salary, better salary, better job than he had before, career job, that he got while working at the homeless shelter. You know, so sometimes you just have to find something positive to do, stay active, movement creates opportunity, and then let the job come to you. You don't find it standing in line very often. Mm. Yeah, that's, uh, that's not what a lot of the books tell you. You know, there's a there's list that you check off. Yeah. But, uh, but you're telling us that you may work on yourself. Yeah, check on the list. Yeah. You check off the things that are on the list. Do all of those things. Write the good resume. Write the good letter. Do the interview techniques. But then work on yourself. Work internally because being lost is first a mental, spiritual, emotional problem. And uh, it doesn't – it's not just all about geography or human the human condition. That's just a portion of my interview from 2013 with uh, Scott Hammond, his wonderful book, Lessons of the Lost. A lot of uh, great search and rescue stories, but some other stories like we just uh, we just told uh, Scott, uh, these these lost men in the 
Oh yeah, in the in the shop yeah. there. You know, Tom, I got to say something though. Um, I've done a lot of interviews on the radio with the, this book, and yours is by far the best. Oh, thank you. You are such a great storyteller and such a treasure for the state. That's why I'm here today because just to support you, you supported me, but you supported so many people. Uh, I, I have to agree. You. We yeah. want we want to sing Tom's praises today too, because yeah. <clears throat> excuse me, as an interviewer, his preparation is amazing, and you know. So when you listen to Access Utah, you're getting a um, a well prepared interview. You know, you're getting in depth, and it's always interesting. I have to so, say, really honestly, yeah. as you were interviewing me, I was so u- expecting the superficial. And he didn't just read the book. He devoured the book. He knew the book better than I did, you know, because I'd written it uh, three years before and and uh, had forgotten parts of it. And he's asking me about it. It was such so, a good interview. I frankly don't know how you do it, Tom. But we're we're here actually to um, to uh, ask you to donate to Utah Public Radio. Uh, I am a donor. I don't make a lot of money, but this is a really important service to me, and I love it. Uh, I get information here, and so you need to call 1-800-826-1495 or go to upr.org, and you can pledge there. So we don't want to lose sight of that fact that we are um, here to help UPR continue this amazing work. UPR.org is the place to go, UPR.org, or you can call 800-826-1495. To me, it's about community, and uh, uh, I get to join with a really smart, curious community every morning. Um, And it's as an interviewer, that's that's a pleasure, because I, I don't have to lay groundwork. I can assume that my audience knows... They are informed. Uh, they're, 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 yeah. they're informed. They have a level of uh, of education and and uh, and that they're curious, just like I am, to uh, to you know. Oh, it's search and rescue, but it's also about being lost emotionally. Yeah, I want to talk to that guy, and then you know, then we bring Scott Hammond. Well, in. and I, I've had people uh, approach me in the Uena Basin. I've had people approach me in Central Utah as I travel around for Utah State that have just um, that just live and die on your words. That's their thread. That's their little line, lifeline to here yeah, and true. to this intellectual community, and uh, and they love it. And it's that one piece that they can, where they can sort of go to school every day. Yeah, for the love of it. Yeah, that's 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 a good word. Go to school. I feel like that. <laughs> I feel like that. I, oh, I I learned something. Yeah, you know? I learned yeah. something today. And almost every book that we ever mention, mm-hmm. I mean, like, okay, now I want to read this book. Uh, you know, we the books on the book show. I there's no way I'll get to read all the books I want to read. You know, that's. Uh, at least I get a taste of them through right. through these programs. Through the, the programs, yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, Scott Cameron has brought in uh, several copies of the book. These are the paperback uh, the copies, I think, 13 you said. Uh, we're uh, going to offer these uh, for a pledge of uh, $96. That's $8 a month. Uh, your money goes to Access Utah and to Utah Public Radio because uh, Scott Hammond is donating these books. So thank you. My pleasure. For, for that. And they're signed by the author. Oh, <laughs> I believe. It. I wish it was a check signed yeah. by me. <laughs> but you'll get a book, uh, and I think you've written in thanks for supporting Utah Public Radio. You know, this is a treasure. This this uh, Utah Public Radio that we have, and we don't understand it until really um, it goes away. And so let's let make sure it doesn't go away. Mm-hmm. And the number again is let's see. I wrote it right down eight hundred eight two six one four nine five, and then. Utah Public Radio or upr.org. So, That's right. So UPR, you can just do it online then. Good things will happen. Um, you said you met your wife, did you, Scott? Oh, at, yes. At a pledge drive? Yes, I did a pledge drive 33 years ago for another um, for a public television, and there's this really beautiful woman sitting next to me, and <laughs> the rest was history. What so. a great story. <laughs> yeah, UPR mm. as, as matchmaker. <laughs> we can't promise you'll meet a, a soulmate, but hey, it might happen. Um, and good things certainly happen for this community. You keep this community strong when you call 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. 800-826-1495 or upr.org. Upr.org is the place to go. Uh, just uh, uh, put in the comments section that you want the book and uh, pledge at least at the $96 level, $8 a month, and we'd love to get a book out to you. Uh, it's, it's a, I promise you it's, a, it's well worth the read. It's uh, some some hair-raising adventures, but it's also some very profound ideas as well. Uh, Scott Hammond's Lessons of the Lost for you at a pledge of $96 
or $8 a month, and that money comes, of course, to Utah Public Radio. And, you know, you can do that through payroll deduction, or um, I just do it through automatic uh, payment through, you know, e-payments through my account. On so your credit I card. I don't mm. even have to worry about it. You know, I just know that my $8 a month comes to UPR. It's not much, but it adds up. And that's so we call that sustainer because and we like that because you don't have to worry about it. We don't have to worry about it. It's set up. It's automatic, and you know that you've uh, done your part. Um, the the uh, the numbers once again. So it's uh, upr.org or eight hundred eight two six. One four nine five, and we'd love to send uh, Scott Hammond's book "Lessons of the Lost" out to you, uh, signed by the author, for a pledge of ninety six dollars or eight dollars uh, a month. Let's take a brief break. When we come back, we will hear a portion of my interview with uh, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich. Uh, she's a Harvard professor, and it was in nineteen seventy six in her first scholarly paper that she made this statement: "Well behaved women seldom make history." Before viral was even a thing, this thing went viral. So we talked to her about that following this break. How farming helps veterans deal with post-traumatic stress disorder. Animals don't care about your bad day. They're going to come up and they're like, I want you to pet me. And you're like, okay, but I'm feeling really mad right now. But man, they don't know the amazing stuff that they're doing for our vets who come through. The power of goat and pig therapy for vets. I'm Steve Kerwood, and that's next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah State University Alumni Association, celebrating homecoming week with a Saturday morning parade on September 24th. Information at usu.edu slash homecoming. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're uh, celebrating Access Utah, and we're uh, raising money for the program, and uh, hope that you will... Uh, uh, send in your pledge. You can go to upr.org, upr.org to take care of that. And uh, a reminder that uh, Scott Hammond's book, Lessons of the Lost, is available to you. It's a wonderful read. Uh, Scott Hammond's a search and rescue guy, and he has some uh, hair-raising adventures of uh, rescue, but he also applies this to being lost emotionally. And a very interesting book. And that for pledge uh, can be yours for a pledge of $96 or $8 a month. And it's signed by the author. I have with me in studio Scott Hammond and uh, Elaine Thatcher. Uh, coming up uh, later in the program, we're going to hear some mu- music from the musical Hamilton. And uh, we are going to hear a bit of my interview with Pulitzer Prize winning author Ron Chernow. He wrote the uh, biography upon which the musical is based. And so we're going to rock out to some music and uh, and hear a, a bit about Hamilton. F- a fascinating book and uh, interview. Next up, however, is uh, my interview with Laurel Thatcher Ulrich. Uh, this is, I think, earlier this year. She observed in 1976 in her first scholarly paper that well-behaved women seldom make history. That ended up being a meme before a meme was even a thing. Yep. Viral before a viral was even a thing. T-shirts, uh, the, the whole works. We're going to talk to her about this. But uh, Elaine uh, Thatcher, you are a relative. Yes, of we are. Laurel um, Thatcher Ulrich. We have the same great grandfather who had two wives who were sisters, and she comes from one sister, and I come from the other. And uh, she came to our home one time to uh, talk to my dad about his memories of family history. Oh, oh, interesting. So yeah. she's yeah, she's she's an amazing person. What was that? What was that visit like? Did you? Oh, it was great. You know, it's actually, it kind of sheds light. I'm a folklorist. She's a historian. You know, folklorists don't really care what is actually, what actually happened. They care about what people think happened. Mm -hmm. And so it was interesting because some of the stories that my dad told, she had not been able to verify in the, in the written record. And she was trying to separate the, the truth from the stories in some ways, you know, and, and, come town to she was she was hoping at that time to do a a biography based on these these women these two wives mm. uh, I should mention uh, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich also is a Pulitzer Prize winning author um, uh, for, I'm, I'm a midwife's tale was the book she yes. won the, the Pulitzer yes. for uh, so let's hear a portion of my interview I believe from earlier this year with uh, Harvard professor Laurel Thatcher Ulrich professor Ulrich uh, pleasure to welcome you to access Utah thank you thank you delighted to be here so I want to talk about a lot during the hour. We'll get as much as we can. I want to start with uh, well-behaved women seldom make history. I, I imagine you you didn't think this was going to become what it did become when you wrote that in 1976. 
Oh, no. I I was trying to uh, write a catchy introduction to an article on Puritan funeral sermons. Can you believe? Wow. Uh, (laughs) So it was a big surprise. I was simply explaining that these godly women who were celebrated in this body of ministerial sermons um, didn't usually get noticed Mm -hmm. in public because well-behaved women seldom make history. And a number of years later, actually after my work was better known uh, because of the Pulitzer, um, a journalist, Kay Mills, picked up that sentence and used it as an epigraph for uh, one of her projects. And then it went from there to a book of quotations, and all of this unbeknownst to me. And then um, somebody picked it up and, and from that book of quotations and wrote me and said, can I put this on T-shirts? Um, <laughs> and I thought it was very funny. Uh, did I say that? You know, I, I had to go back and confirm um, and I said, sure, send me a T-shirt. Mm-hmm. I had no idea this was going to take off. <laughs> now, have, I don't know. If it occurred to me, uh, maybe I'm uh, money-oriented. Has it occurred to you that if you'd have copyrighted that, you could have made some money? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there are lots of places where um, I'm, I'm really famous for that one line, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, all the many, many hours of scholarship mm-hmm. and— um, one sentence took off, but of course, um, I didn't have foresight, and nobody would have copyrighted it anyway. Yeah, it probably would have escaped that. Uh, yeah. So, um, you had a specific meaning in mind in that 1976 paper, but of course, it's taken on many different meanings. So, maybe we could start there. What 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 did you mean in the 1976 paper? Okay, and um, it's taken on a tremendous number of meanings, some of which were very much present in that early paper. Um, and I, you know, wrote the book a um, number of years later, in part to respond to those varied meanings. So one meaning, of course, is that um, women who are do what society expects of them pretty much get ignored. I mean, it's the old proverb, you know, a, a good woman's name is not supposed to appear in the newspaper except maybe when she's married and when she dies. Mm. So there's something wrong if uh, you make history, the implication meaning uh, you've done something outrageous. Um, And in truth, my first book, which was based largely on court records, really confirms that. I mean, it was people who got into trouble and therefore their voices were recorded in court records that um, appear in that book, along with women who showed up in funeral sermons. But those funeral sermons were very much part of an effort on the part of the clergy to ratify a certain view of what a good woman should do. So there was that tension in my book, Good Wives, between the the pious um, woman who was godly, who asked nothing for herself, who was self-sacrificing, and uh, the women who got into trouble, like Quaker women, for example, who presumed to speak in public, or women who, you know, created a ruckus in the in the meeting house, or women who got into trouble for their sexual behavior. Um, so from the very beginning in my work, I've, I've played this dual view of the well-behaved, bad-wave woman around the theme of who gets remembered and why. Mm-hmm. And I've sought very, very hard to write um, more complex history that incorporates wherever possible the voices of women themselves who were neither perfect nor outrageous, Mm. but who nevertheless had an impact on history. 
One of the women you uh, treat in the book is Virginia Woolf. Uh, you have a quote of hers at the beginning of, of the book, Well-Behaved Women Seldom Make History. I'll just read this briefly. For all the dinners are cooked, the plates and cups washed, the children are set to school and gone out into the world, nothing remains of it all. All has vanished. No biography or history has a word to say about it. And the novels, without meaning to inevitably lie. That's Virginia Woolf. Yes. And, of course, Virginia Woolf is amazing in having... Um, created high literary art out of, you know, Mrs. Dalloway's search for flowers for her dinner party. I mean, just to really get into the inside and consciousness of of an anonymous woman's life. Before we get into how this intersects with what history is, and you have some very interesting ideas on what what history, what history has been, then you push back on that a bit. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a few of the, a few of the story. I was enjoying reading in, in uh, Well-Behaved Women, uh, Seldom Make History, the book you, you made on this, uh, reactions that women have, uh, <laughs> have had. One, what, let me just start with, one young lady wanted to cite this in a paper she was doing, but she didn't want to have to cite a T-shirt, so she, I guess she contacted you. <laughs> Yes. Um, I wrote the book in part because I was getting all this fan mail. Um, it was very, very strange. Or I'd go into some place. I, I remember going to a conference once that was held in a, in a women's camp. And the, the young women who were working in the kitchen all said, are you the woman who <laughs> you know, created the slogan? And it, it was a very odd experience. I, I mean, it showed up on um, various kinds of um, activist uh, websites, or I had people write and say, could I use this uh, for, say, um, a conference of women judges? Or can I use this in a, a meeting of midwives? Or, you know, can we use a, this in a campaign um, for, you know, almost any cause you could think of? But then I got this, um, I got some um, somewhat risque uh, comments and the various versions and the illustrations of this very much written about the, exactly the point I was making is that women who get into trouble end up um, in history. And so some people ran with that theme. Other people ran with the theme of anonymity. So quilters like this slogan. Um, we're, we're doing this methodical craft and artwork, and we, uh, we're making history. Um, we're asserting ourselves through something that's not been noted uh, before. One of the funnier examples was um, a woman who wrote and said she and her husband were having an argument about this bumper sticker, whether (laughs) it should be on their car. And she wanted my uh, reassurance, you know, that I was not promoting bad behavior. Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, Harvard professor. She is winner of the Pulitzer Prize for History for a Midwife's Tale. She's also a MacArthur Fellow. And uh, she joined me um, earlier this year, and we talked about that uh, well-behaved women seldom make history, this meme, uh, before meme was even even a, a thing. Um, and that uh, program, uh, as well as the upcoming interview with Ron Chernow, we'll hear just shortly, is part of the Pulitzer Prize of Centennial Campfires Initiative. Uh, the uh, Pulitzer Prize uh, uh sent out some money through uh, the Humanities Councils, and Utah Humanities partnered up with us, Utah Public Radio, and with Salt Lake Tribune and KCPW, and we're doing a series of interviews with Pulitzer winners. Uh, so that's an example of community pooling together, pooling resources. We have some great organizations who we do. who have a, a similar mission, who pool their resources. And now we're looking to you as a part of the UPR community to um, to to become a member, maybe for the first time, or renew your membership. And one of the great things about it is that you're part of this conversation, this intellectual conversation that goes on throughout the state, and yet it's a very personal conversation as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. It's not uh, some grand thing. It's not difficult to be part of this. You just jump in and be uh, and and join, uh, join, contribute, 
um, respond. If and you've never, yeah, go ahead. I, I was going to say, if, if you've never um, been a member of public radio, public media, um, you really should try it because you get a great sense of sort of ownership. You get, you, you become a part of this. You take an interest, a greater interest in how these things happen. How, how does this radio program happen? You know, there are people behind it, and, and Tom, you hear on the, on the microphone, but there's Connor over here in the other room, and he's uh, managing the controls and the interview clips, and, and there are people who are doing all these other jobs that, uh, that all make it happen. There are people collecting news, writing news stories. You know, I mean, it's just ongoing. It's a, a tremendous amount of work to create this kind of quality. And it sort of rescues you. And I, can mm-hmm. I tell you a quick story about sure. how I rescued yes. me? A couple of weeks ago, I'm backpacking in the Uintas. It's uh, thunderstorms are moving through in the middle of the night. It's thunder and lightning outside the tent, and I'm there, and uh, and I can't sleep. And so I uh, get out my little FM radio, tiny FM lightweight radio, and and this is I get this direct signal somehow to uh, to Utah Public Radio, and I listen for you know, 45 minutes and to these <laughs> beautiful and familiar voices. I love it. It connects you with news. There's just so many, it just reaches out across the state like a web and helps us be part of this community, and you can't leave it at home. So 1-800-826-1495 or upr.org, you can pledge online. Those, those are the portals for you to become a participant in this, this great work. If you've never done this before, uh, let, let me encourage you. It's, it's a fast and easy process. We, we know that uh, it takes several years, usually, of listening before you make that critical step. But, but boy, we sure need you uh, to become a new member of Utah Public Radio. We have uh, longtime members who move out of the area, um, and uh, we, we need to uh, replenish that, uh, that money in that community. So, and sometimes they die. Sometimes you they know, die, yes. My, my, yes, aunt, yes. my aunt Margaret Wood was well known to this staff because she, was, she loved every aspect of public radio, and she was a, a donor. And you know that a couple of public radio staffers showed up at her funeral yeah, because she, she, she was, was such a great supporter. Yeah. And, you know, it becomes a family thing. Well, and I have uh, my parents live in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, and they might be listening on the internet right now. Yeah, it's <laughs> upr.org is yeah. place to pledge. Yeah, so uh, there. I mean, it does allow you to get uh, all across this wonderful network. This is the place to uh, to hear hear the ways to do this. One eight hundred eight two six one four nine five eight hundred eight two six one four nine five or upr.org upr.org if you go to upr.org you can see all of the great thank you gifts we've got the upr scarf and the beanie um, and we've got a flashlight uh, and we also have uh, this has got me excited with scott hammond has brought in his book 13 copies of the book so up, up to 13 people can take advantage of this for a pledge of 96 dollars or eight dollars a month you'll get a signed copy of scott hammond's book lessons of the lost that we talked about earlier in the program. Some great search and rescue stories, but also some poignant stories about being lost emotionally and, and what we can do about that. Uh, so the, the number, once again, 800-826-1495, or you can join us to upr.org. I have Scott Hammond and Lane Thatcher with me. And after a break, we're going to uh, hear some uh, great hip-hop music, the, uh, the, the musical which has swept the nation, Hamilton. We're going to talk to the author of the biography upon which that musical is based, Ron Chernow. That's following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Bridger Folk Music Society, presenting Three Hat Trio, music inspired by the deserts of southern Utah, Saturday evening, September 17th in Logan. Tickets and information at bridgerfolk.org. I'm Robin Young. Kurt Vonnegut was known for classics like Slaughterhouse-Five, but this weekend an opera will premiere, written by Vonnegut, based on one of his works, composed by a longtime friend. I thought of him like another father or grandfather. This man was more family to me than anybody in my professional life. Next time, here now. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. I'm joined by uh, Scott Hammond and Elaine Thatcher. We are doing Best of Access Utah for the UPR Fund Drive. And uh, we're doing books on the program today. We do a lot of uh, book interviews. Uh, uh, 
authors really uh, delve deep into some uh, some very fascinating ideas. That's one of the tent poles, you might say, of Access Utah. It's uh, fascinating ideas, um, compelling uh, stories, and important community issues. And uh, so we are hearing uh, from some of our favorite author interviews, and uh, now we've reached um, a, uh, the portion, the musical portion of today's uh, show. <laughs> um, uh, also part of the Pulitzer Prize Centennial uh, Campfires Initiative, we interviewed, uh, I interviewed Ron uh, Chernow, who uh, won the Pulitzer for his wonderful um, biography of uh, Washington, which is well worth the read. If uh, Washington is perhaps the least accessible at the Founding Fathers. And I wanted to kind of get behind the mask, and Chernow does that very well. Um, but uh, I read that after I read the uh, the biography Alexander Hamilton, and I came to the book through NPR, and I believe they were interviewing uh, Chernow, and uh, I learned from NPR that uh, there was going to be a hip-hop musical based on this book of Alexander Hamilton, the first Treasury Secretary. And I remember thinking, I don't know. It's is going that, is that, yeah. is that going to work? I don't know. <laughs> and uh, then they played this song that we're going to hear, and I, it converted me. I thought, yeah, not only can this work, but I want to see that musical. And, <laughs> and uh, maybe even more importantly, I want to read that book. So I, I went out, I, got the book, read the book. It's it's you know fifty thousand pages or something. Isn't the musical coming to Salt Lake too? Is it? Oh, it's yeah. coming. Yeah, okay, it I believe it is. So, so yeah. I'll be able to to, to go. Uh, but but the biography is fascinating. Hamilton is, is has a fascinating life. Uh, so let's hear this uh, song from the musical. Then we'll hear this uh, brief excerpt from interview with Ron Chernow. Between all the bleeding and fighting, I've been reading and writing. We need to handle our financial situation. Are we a nation of states? What's the state of our nation? I'm past patiently waiting, I'm passionately smashing every expectation, every action's an act of creation. I'm laughing in the face of casualties and sorrow. For the first time, I'm thinking past tomorrow. And I am not pulling away my shot. I am not pulling away my shot. Hey, yo, I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry, and I'm not. A lot of attention on Alexander Hamilton at this point. Um, what do you think that says? Why, why is Alexander Hamilton having his moment right now? Well, you know, I think when I started writing my biography of Alexander Hamilton in 1998, one of the reasons I did so was that he was fading into obscurity. It seems comical now because his name is up on the marquee of a, a Broadway musical. But Hamilton was regarded as a kind of a second string founding father, um, whereas I thought that he, his achievements were really monumental and deserved to be put up right up there with George Washington, Ben Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, uh, James Madison. And so I think that not only the book, but the show is part of an ongoing uh, reevaluation of the period, and Hamilton's stock just keeps rising higher and higher. I want to jump into Hamilton's life, but first of all, the musical, it's, it's, it's a big hit, um, do you think the musical's creators got it right? Did they faithfully represent uh, Hamilton's life and ideas? Absolutely. You know, usually when either Hollywood or Broadway does American uh, history, uh, that they um, start out with the assumption that they have to simplify it in some form, that it's really boring. And I think the wonderful thing about uh, working with Lin-Manuel Miranda uh, was that he had real integrity, and he realized that... Um, this is a life that is so dramatic and so improbable. There's no way that you can improve on it. You just have to capture it. And I think that he did it brilliantly. And uh, he really worked very, very faithfully uh, from, the, from the book. So I'm kind of touched and thrilled and, frankly, slightly amazed that my book has triggered off this national and international phenomenon called Hamilton. What did what did you think when uh, they first came and pitched this uh, to you? Or, or, or well, the first time that I met um, Lynn, he was still starring in his first Broadway show, which was called uh, In the Heights. He told me that he had read my biography on vacation in Mexico, and he said as he was reading the book, uh, hip hop songs started 
rising off the page. And I could remember saying to him, really? You know, this was not a typical reaction to, uh, to, to my book. And then he started telling me that he wanted to do either um, a hip-hop concept album or a hip-hop um, musical about the life of Alexander Hamilton. And I think that Lynn immediately realized that he was speaking to a world-class ignoramus about hip-hop. <laughs> so I said to him, can hip-hop be the vehicle for telling this kind of very rich and complex story? And he said, Ron, I'm going to educate you about hip-hop. And on the spot, he started explaining to me why hip-hop was the perfect vehicle. He started pointing out things like, because the lyrics are very dense and rapid, you can pack an enormous amount of information into the lyrics. Um, uh, the, the lyrics have not only rhymed endings, but internal rhyme and wordplay and lots and lots of things. You know, I didn't initially, Tom, see what an inspiration it was in terms of matching up Hamilton with uh, hip-hop. But the way that he's portrayed in the show is as a very um, intense, driven, almost frenetic character. And that personality matches up perfectly with this, these very dense, rapid uh, lyrics. So as we kept working together, because we worked together for about six or seven years, I saw what a marvelous inspiration the whole thing was. One thing comes through very clearly in your book, that, that white-hot ambition. and that, that He's not alone, of course, in, in this, but he definitely was, was very, very ambitious. And, and he achieved, achieved a lot. Yeah, I mean, his achievements are extraordinary because there were, um, you know, three major acts of the founding drama in our country. The first was the Revolutionary War, and during the Revolutionary War, he becomes aide-de-camp to George Washington and chief of staff. He then is a battlefield, you know, hero at Yorktown. You know, the second act of the drama, the Constitution, Constitutional Convention, it's Hamilton who personally issues the call for a Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in May 1787. He attends... He's the sole New York delegate to sign it. Then afterwards, he oversees the Federalist Papers, 85 essays um, uh, that were published anonymously to um, get people to ratify uh, the Constitution. Hamilton wrote 51 of the 85 essays in six months. And then the third act of the drama was creating the federal government, where Hamilton becomes the first Treasury Secretary at age 34 not only created the Treasury Department, uh, created the uh, Coast Guard. He uh, created the first customs service. He created the first central bank, the forerunner of the Federal Reserve System, first fiscal system, first monetary system, first tax system, first accounting system, on, on, on. He really was the architect of the uh, federal government. That's what I was saying earlier, Tom. These are really monumental achievements. And to my mind, you know, he should be up there uh, on the pedestal with the other main founding fathers. Why do you think uh, Hamilton resonates so much, especially through his vehicle of the of, of the musical? Why, why do you think he resonates so so much? Well, you know, I think that uh, partly um, he comes, as I was saying before, he comes to North America. He doesn't know uh, soul, so he's the he's the quintessential immigrant. He's really the most influential immigrant uh, in our history, and I think that very importantly for people, and I see this really resonates with young people. He was a self-invented figure. You know, he was an extraordinarily smart and talented man, you know, and he thought that he could do anything, and, and he seemed to in many ways. And, you know, when we were working on the show, I knew that people would be walking out of the theater with a lot of the political, you know, parallels that we were just, uh, and political differences that we were just talking about. What I had not foreseen uh, with, with uh, the musical, and I should have, is that a lot of people, particularly young people, are walking out of the theater thinking to themselves, what am I doing with my life? How am I using my time? What is my legacy? And that the show and Hamilton's life have this powerful, you know, personal meaning for people, which I think is absolutely uh, fantastic. You know, it doesn't get any better than this for a biographer. It doesn't get any better than this for a Broadway show. Finally, what, is, uh, what does Hamilton mean, do you think? Uh, there's, he's meant a lot of different things over the years. What, what, phrase it this way, what do you hope he means at this point? Well, you know, um, very often people will say to me, what would the founders have thought about this? And I say, well, the founders um, didn't give us uh, a set of answers. They gave us a set of questions because they were arguing about the same conflicts we had today. Um, Hamilton was in favor of a strong central government. Um, Jefferson was in favor of states' rights. Hamilton was in favor of a very expansive interpretation of the Constitution. Jefferson was in favor of strict construction. Hamilton was in favor of executive power. Jefferson was in favor of legislative uh, power. And so I think that Hamilton has many different um, meanings, and I think that we're still 
debating the same issues in this election year that they were debating back in the 1780s and 1790s. It's quite amazing, the continuity mm-hmm. of American politics. And it's, you know, an argument without an end. We'll still be fighting about this stuff 50 or 100 years from now. For instance, federal power and states' rights is right at the center of the, uh, of, of the Civil War. But the system, you know, reaches a point uh, where those um, uh, tensions can no longer be handled within the framework of the constitutional system. I hope to God, you know, we never reach that point again in the country. And of course, you know, we're seeing in the presidential race, the Democrats are veering off towards left, you know, and the Republicans are veering off towards the right, you know, and one has to hope that our constitutional system is strong enough uh, to contain all of these different contending forces that have become very, very powerful in this election year. I think it will. I mean, again, you know, the founders, um, after the convention in Philadelphia, uh, Hamilton, Washington, Franklin, you know, they thought the Constitution might last 20 years. I think if they came back, nothing would amaze them more than how uh, durable the U.S. Constitution has been. Get your education. Don't forget from whence you came. And the world's going to know your name. What's your name, man? Alexander Hamilton. My name is Alexander Hamilton. And there's a million things I haven't done. But just you wait. Just you wait. When he was ten, his father split full of it. Dead, ridden two years later, see Alex and his mother bedridden, half dead, sitting in their own sick, the scent thick. And Alex got better, but his mother went quack. Moving with a cousin, the cousin committed suicide, left him with nothing but ruined bride, something new inside a voice saying, Alex, you gotta fend for yourself. He started retreating and reading every treatise on the shelf. There would have been nothing left to do for someone less astute. He would have been dead or destitute without a cent or restitution. Started working, working for his late mother's landlord. Trading sugar cane and rum and all the things he can't afford. Scanning for every book he can get his hands on. Planning for the future, see him now as he stands on the bow of a ship. Heading for a new land. In New York, you can be a new man. So that is a portion of the musical Hamilton, Lin-Manuel Miranda. Um, I can just imagine that pitch. In fact, Ron Chernow talks about that. This young man, you know, who, who knows he's had success, I think, with one, one uh, musical. And he has this idea, I'm going to turn your book into a musical. The least likely thing that could happen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's kind of like, yeah, I'm going to write an opera about Nixon in China. Yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> really. Sometimes yeah. it hits, and hits hits big, and we're, we're glad it did. Uh, so we're glad we were able to talk to Ron Chernow, and uh, that's just, uh, we hope, typical of what you hear on Access Utah. But it but it's our chance to hear hip-hop that I would normally wouldn't listen right. to, to hear some things that I normally wouldn't hear and like them. Yeah. And that's broadening me yes even me you know broadening yeah. me and that's what your programs do here on utah public radio yeah yeah we, we hope so if, if you agree uh here is that this is the time this is the place and here's how to uh to to, to back that up become a member of utah public radio and uh, help support this financially it's 800-826-1495 800-826-1495 or you can go to upr.org upr.org and i am so I, I'm loving this. We were watching, you know, we have a glass window here between us and the control room, and there were three interns in there rocking out to this music <laughs> just a minute ago. And, you know, so this is reaching multiple multiple generations. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, these interns are college students. Um, they are working here at Utah Public Radio, learning this craft. So this kind of work... Uh, public broadcasting can be carried on into the future because this honestly is one of the most valuable resources we have in this nation. Um, public broadcasting was set up to uh, provide balanced educational content, and uh, I really 
I'm I can't speak well, highly enough. That's one of the things that's great about it is that you're not going after the rating or the instant fix or the quick fix. You don't interrupt all the time for commercials. You're not trying to sell something. You're just trying to help us be enlightened, just inform. help us broaden, help us be informed, help us continue our education really yeah so you know honestly so once again you can do this you can join this family by going to upr.org and you can sign up there and you can actually see the the uh you call them gifts you can see yeah thank you you can Mm -hmm. see the gifts on online if you are interested in having one of those one is uh scott hammond's book if you if you uh, join at the eight dollar month level uh, Lessons of the Lost, and we just heard him talking about that. It sounds wonderful. I haven't read it, and I'm going to. Uh, or you can call 800-826-1495. Or upr.org. I just want to fit uh, one uh, final um, segment in here. This is uh, from a program we did with John Palfrey, who's founding president of the Digital Public Library of America. He wrote a book called Bibliotech, Why Libraries Matter More Than Ever in the Age of Google. Uh, late in the program, we got uh, well. We got a big response to this program. Our listeners, as we know, are, are book lovers. Uh, they love learning, and uh, we we heard from Irene in Canada. Let's hear just this two-minute call here. We have another caller, uh, Irene, uh, calling us from Canada. Irene, uh, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Hi, um, this is a, a, an emotional topic for me. Um, I have a lot of kids, and. When we first moved to Alberta, it was a recession, and um, the library was a free space where we could access many, many things. And so I think more than ever in this day and age, with what's been going on with the economy, that it's very important to keep programs out there that are free available. I have kids that um, are very successful. They don't have financial concerns. Um, but they bring their kids to the library because that was just something that we did, like, several times a week. We participated in all kinds of wonderful programs, and my children continue to bring their kids, like, right from six months up to participate in the programs. Uh, It is a community center, um, and, yes, there are homeless people even here in Medicine Hat that frequent it, Um, And I just take my hat off to the librarians that very beautifully deal with whatever they get thrown at them. And I don't think libraries are on their way out. I agree. I think people need to embrace using both systems, digital and and hard copies. Um, So there you go. Uh, Irene, thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. Okay. Bye. John Palfrey, another... another, uh uh, you know, plug for for libraries from from oh, really, uh, really beautiful personal experience. Yeah. I mean, thank you. That was it's an incredible incredible way to put it, and and certainly the emotion in your voice underscores the importance I think that libraries play in people's lives and 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 in a family's life and family's life over multiple generations. It, I really I really couldn't couldn't put it any better. John Paul Free, and then before that we heard Irene in uh, in Medicine Hat. Um, so we hope that and that's an example of the response that we get to Access Utah and. Uh, and uh, that is a very important, the library is a very important community outlet for, for Irene. We hope that uh, public radio is a, is a similar outlet. You're really an extension of the library in a lot of ways in that you tell us what books might, uh, we might pull off the shelf. Right. You provide that public space where we can talk to people who are different, to homeless people even, yes. to people who write Hamilton, to people who, uh, you know, so you f- provide that space. You do a lo- in a lot of ways you're an extension of that library. And here's how to support that. Uh, Yes, uh, you can go to upr.org. You can see all the levels there. You can see the potential gift if you would like to receive one for various levels. And you can sign up there. Or you can call 1-800-826-1495. You can go to upr.org, upr.org. I want to put in one final plug for uh, Scott's book. Uh, this is well worth the read, and uh, and he's made it available for a pledge of $8 a month, $96 for the year. The money comes to UPR to support Access Utah, and you get the book signed by the author. The, the, the book is Lessons of the Lost. Uh, your 22nd version of what this is about, well, Scott. Well, it's finding hope and resilience in work, life, and the wilderness. And so it's wilderness experiences 
applied to life. And uh, Scott had uh, some experience with Scott and his dog, uh, search and rescue, and also applied to the other areas of, of life. That's for a pledge of $8 uh, per uh Month. Per month. <laughs> or nine, yeah, thank you, Elaine. <laughs> or $96 for the year. 800-826-1495 or upr.org. Elaine Thatcher, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. And Scott Hammond, thank oh, you. thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University, yeah. this is Utah Public Radio. Heard statewide on KUSR, Logan, KUSK, Vernal, KUSL, Richfield, KUST, Moab, KCEU, Price, and KUSU-FM, Logan.